0: Section 10 of Criminal Investigation, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Criminal Investigation A Practical Handbook for Magistrates, Police Officers, and Lawyers, Volume 2 by Hans Gross. Translated by John Adam and John Collier Adam. Wandering Tribes continued section 5 instruments used for theft poisoning etc asking ourselves what we find remarkable about gypsies when our profession places us in direct relations with them we are forced to the conclusion that the results are deceptive rarely do we find a gypsy in the possession of a housebreaking implement which is really of use such as other professional thieves are accustomed to carry and regard as their most precious possession though working hurriedly. The gypsy is none the less a skilled blacksmith at need, and he is a locksmith by birth. Yet in spite of this he makes no instrument of theft, false key, etc. He is too lazy to make them, and too timid to carry or keep them. Nor is it in his nature to work with false keys and artificial instruments. He gets into a house by the window, or in any other convenient manner, for he has previous and accurate information as to the strength of the locks, and with a knife, twisted nail, etc., can open almiras with astonishing skill. He may be primitive, but he is practical and sure. Gypsies are always found in possession of fish-hooks and lines. The hooks are put to various uses according to their size and shape, but are hardly ever used for fishing, in which sport the gypsy rarely indulges. The fish-hook of the gypsy principally serves to catch with ease and certainty all kinds of birds hens ducks geese and if need be even pigeons the men and sometimes the women approach quietly a flock of such birds not in the immediate neighbourhood of a house but at a little distance and not under supervision and throw some bread crumbs to them these crumbs are said to be impregnated with a substance likely to attract the birds sometimes said to be chives sometimes asafoetida and sometimes crushed aniseed when they have been baited with this food, larger balls of it are thrown to them, and finally one containing the fish-hook. This hook is attached, as in fishing, to a silk cast, fastened to a strong gut-cast, or sometimes to a thin metal one. The bird is naturally enough caught on the hook, pulled in, and gets its neck twisted. It is then fastened to a lace already arranged under the gypsy's clothes. The other birds are frightened for the moment, but soon come back, and the operation recommences. At times, also for geese, artificial bait is used. In this case, the gypsy uses pieces of green rag, or even, in case of need, leaves, fashioned into an artificial frog, which easily deceives a goose. A hook is hidden inside the frog, which is then drawn before the flock of geese, and at the same time being made to jump by means of the line. A goose cannot resist this temptation thus the gypsies procure a dinner and the peasants believe that their birds have been lifted by a fox they do not suspect the game the gypsies have played upon them another use for the fish-hook and a much more dangerous one is its employment as a throwing weapon three or four hooks are bound together and set into a leaden ball split open and then reclosed a single hook may be used, but it is much less efficacious than a system of hooks, which becomes attached to an object whichever way it falls, in the same way as does a ship-anchor. The leaden ball is to lend the apparatus the necessary weight to allow of its being accurately thrown. As regards the throwing, gypsies, especially the children, are remarkably skilful. Among all races children amuse themselves by throwing stones, but their particular object in doing so is to throw them as far as possible not so with the young gypsy. He gathers together a heap of stones of about the size of a nut, and then chooses a target, such as a fairly large stone, a small plank, or an old cloth, and at a distance of from about ten to twenty paces he then launches his stock of projectiles, never tiring of throwing them at the same target. He keeps going for hours, and soon acquires such skill at this exercise that he never misses anything larger than one's hand." When he has reached this stage he is given a throwing-hook and a rag, the latter being placed at a certain distance from him. He soon ends by catching it every time. The young gypsy throws the hook in all possible and imaginable ways. The occupation is very characteristic of the gypsy. It gives him a distraction devoid of trouble and offers him the prospect, when his skill has increased, of gathering in valuable spoils. The young gypsy comes out of his apprenticeship when he is able to strike and carry off a piece of rag thrown upon the branches of a tree, among which he has to cast his hook. The practical utility of this accomplishment is to enable him to carry off linen, clothes, and such-like things, in houses into which it is difficult, not to say impossible, to penetrate. In this way he fishes for linen hung up to dry in an enclosed courtyard, entrance to which is difficult or dangerous. It is really with astonishing skill that the gypsy fishes in the downstairs rooms through a barred window for the clothes of a peasant who is eating in the next room. He even goes so far as to fish clothes hanging from pegs. Here he raises them until they are just on the point of falling to the ground, and then draws them towards him until they reach his greedy hands. This operation is as quick as sure, and it rarely happens that the coveted article gets caught by a chair, etc., so that the hook has to be abandoned. As a rule, the work is brought to a happy conclusion and results in a good haul. Sometimes the fisher removes articles through the open windows of lofts and granaries, if they be not too high, or again he hides behind a hedge and fishes off the horse jewels from the backs of horses standing waiting for their masters in the road. No doubt the latter can, through the window of the inn, see all the people passing up and down the road, but as to the gypsy behind the hedge, neither has he seen him, nor will he see again his new jewel. A great number of those mysterious thefts, the authors of which have not been seen, and whose approach to the scene of the theft cannot be explained, are thus quite easily accounted for. Gypsies have even, they say, fished hams hung in the chimney for smoking, after having hoisted themselves on to the roof, which in such cases is not very high. Gypsy talismans and medicines are always more or less cabalistic in nature. Various greases and burnt or unburnt hair play an especially important role in the composition of love potions and erotic powders. The author is not aware of the composition of their famous medicine for procuring abortion, which all gypsies are said to know and possess. It seems to be infallible and the only real abortifacient. The gypsy is generally found in possession of phosphorus and arsenic this does not indicate that any danger need be expected from them for the former is exclusively employed as a medicine for animals whereas the latter only seems to be used for the destruction of rats and mice every gypsy willingly engages in this sport and does so the more readily as it is an excellent way of visiting a house and its outhouses in the most minute manner without attracting any suspicion when the gypsy wishes to poison someone he uses neither phosphorus nor arsenic nor the like he uses his infallible dry also called Dree or dry which is unknown to any one else and is the most terrible of poisons it is said to be a fine brown powder made with the spores of a mushroom perhaps the aspergillus niger these spores grow in animal organisms developing a greenish-yellow shoot of about 12 to 15 inches in length this powder is dissolved in lukewarm liquid, and the spores, becoming fixed in the mucous membrane, and rapidly developing there, bring on consumption, coughing, often spitting of blood, and death finally ensues after two or three weeks. When the body becomes cold, the mushroom also soon dies, and disappears so completely that after death no trace of it can be found. SECTION 6. ATTITUDE BEFORE THE AUTHORITIES it remains to speak of the attitude of the gipsy before the authorities. We commence by repeating that one must know the gipsy in order to be able to find out the truth, and even in order to do him any justice. The difference between the gipsy and any other man is very great, and the more one knows of this remarkable race, the more is one astonished that in civilized countries, in times when everything levels, a race which has no resemblance to any other has survived. Later on we shall mention a few proverbs which are significant of the gypsy, and which may help to characterize him. When brought before the authorities, the gypsy at first conducts himself in a manner which is at the same time savage, prudent, and somewhat groping. Like the Jews and Oriental peoples, he is fond of answering all questions with another question so as to gain time for reflection. This is so much a habit with him that he often says, when asked his name, What name can a poor gypsy have? If asked his age, he replies, What age can I be? How can I tell when I came into the world? Who is able to say my age? If asked if he has already been punished, he replies by a perfect deluge of protest. Why do you wish me to have been punished? Who has said that I have been punished? Have you ever seen me in prison? Do I look like a man who has already been punished? Then commence his protestations of innocence in the past, the present, and the future soon he comes to himself his modesty disappears and his effrontery self-consciousness and even his pride come to life in a torrent of words which it is preferable to allow him to give vent to the author agrees with other investigating officers that it is best to allow all great talkers to finish without interruption rather than pull them up as some advise it is useless waste of trouble to ask a gypsy to be brief. He will then begin his story all over again, and not only will nothing be gained, but the time already spent will be wasted. It is excellent, on the other hand, to write down, or to have written down by a clerk, everything the gypsy says. He is often discovered in the most flagrant contradictions, often, also this procedure bothers him, and he commences to express himself more briefly. In all cases his boldness and self-confidence increase visibly as the examination goes on especially when the investigating officer is calm and silent. The gypsy takes this for stupidity and gets bolder. One may perhaps appear to be somewhat convinced by his reasoning. Thereupon he lies the harder. Suppose one doubts just a little, some good action or other, or some noble quality which he pretends to possess. He exaggerates it all the more. He should be allowed to work himself up for a while with his own words. A certain dose of frankness may always be expected from even the boldest and the most intelligent and then, when the moment arrives, his contradictions should be shortly and energetically pointed out to him, and the proofs against him brought together. Rarely can we obtain the real truth from a gipsy, but one quickly notices that his crime may be brought home to him when he loses his boldness and begins to supplicate and complain. The naivete which induces him to lie all the more, while pretending in the rest of his conduct consciousness of and repentance of for his crime, must not be lost sight of the gipsy does not know the proverb which is otherwise so true the more one recognizes that one is wrong the more pig-headed one becomes and the more he notices that his crime is out and that he is vanquished the quieter he becomes and the more does his confidence and effrontery desert him but even when the gipsy makes a confession he does so not without hesitation the ample use of equivocation and even if possible a fresh batch of lies THE AUTHOR ONLY REMEMBERS ONE SINGLE CASE OF RECEIVING A FULL CONFESSION FROM A GYPSY, WITH AT THE SAME TIME IMPORTANT INFORMATION CONCERNING HIS ACCOMPLICES. A MAN AND HIS WIFE WERE SUSPECTED OF HAVING COMMITTED, SOME TIME PREVIOUSLY, A CRIME WITH WHICH A GYPSY HAD SOME DISTANT CONNECTION. THIS GYPSY, A LITTLE WHILE AFTER THIS FIRST CRIME, HAD BEEN CONVICTED OF WILLFUL MURDER AND SENTENCED TO IMPRISONMENT FOR LIFE. HE HAD ALREADY BEEN in prison FOR SEVERAL YEARS. During his examination he denied, as also did the couple above mentioned, with imperturbable obstinacy, ever having known the victim, or yet the suspected couple. He knew nothing about anything. He made the mistake of relying on the circumstance that some time had elapsed since the crime was committed, and did not know that immediately after the crime a searching inquiry had been carried out, the results of which were now before the authorities, and enabled them to know exactly how the crime had been committed, and reconstitute it, even as regards its smallest details. When the gypsy, who was a cunning rascal, found himself to be so grossly mistaken, and that everything was known much better even than the authorities actually allowed him to think than it was known, he remained silent for a little while, and then began, "'I am a poor devil shut up for the rest of my life. You surely do not wish to hang me for this new business, and besides you cannot sentence me to a longer term of imprisonment than imprisonment for life. This couple wishes to throw unjustly the whole blame upon me. I shall tell all.' he then related the whole story of the crime the accuracy of which was immediately verified and he added some supplementary information which the author found of great interest from a psychological point of view the man and the wife were not of the same nationality the man being a german and the woman a hungarian the gipsy said to me if you do not wish to condemn the innocent unjustly, and make the case even more notorious than it is, these two people must be tried on their merits, that is to say, the German in one way, and the wife, who is not a German, in another way. Thereupon he began to characterize the German and Hungarian races with surprising acuteness and clearness. All that he said concerning the German race was not exactly flattering, but all the same he was right.' The author was even inclined to abandon in some degree his unfavorable opinions concerning gypsies, if this one had not spoiled all by giving him some advice as to their capture. His instructions were so mean and so diabolically cunning that all the baseness of this infamous race was shown up anew. We tried to make him understand that the authorities could not possibly take the steps he advised, but he looked at us in stupefaction, shrugged his shoulders, and was silent. Section 7. Their Corporal Characteristics As regards the corporal qualities and capabilities of the gypsy, they must in no way be judged according to the ordinary standard by which we judge the rest of mankind. This is especially true when the question is whether such and such a thing is possible or not to a man. One can in general say that a man has been able to do such or such a thing, but it is not the same with the gypsy, and it is best to believe him capable of anything this is especially the case when distance is in question as when it is said if the roads are good and if one knows the way and is unencumbered one may go there in so much time if the road is bad and one does not know the way and is loaded with baggage in so much time this may very well apply to the average mortal but not to the gipsy be the road good or bad know he it or not carry he anything with him or go he free it matters not to him when necessary he can cover his distances with incomprehensible rapidity, knowing no obstacle but one—the wind. This peculiarity has been often marked. Gypsies cannot bear the wind, and are distressed when they have to struggle with it. Another thief steals for preference on stormy nights, not so the gypsy. He hides himself when his enemy howls. If he be obliged to set out in the wind it takes him longer to cover his journey than any other man. If a theft has taken place on a stormy night, it may be safely presumed from the outset that the authors of it were not gypsies. The illnesses and the sufferings of the gypsy ought also to be judged differently to those of other people. Care must be taken not invariably to conclude that illnesses contracted while a gypsy is in prison are mere shamming. Even when the doctor is unable to discover what is the matter with the gypsy is nonetheless often ill, and dangerously ill, just as the hillsman is when he is forced to live in the plains or the dweller in the plains when transported to the hills and just as is the bird of passage when shut up in a cage the gipsy has become accustomed for centuries to a life in the open air and cannot support the deprivation of it any more than he can the change of food and clothing and the imposition of the order and employment consequent to regular life he falls ill at first in mind and then in body and if his liberty the sole means of curing him cannot be given to him he should not be tormented the more by taking him for a sham and treating him as such it is important for the investigating officer to notice the rapidity with which the wounds of gipsies heal owing doubtless to their oriental origin at least this peculiarity has been remarked among Eastern races. The author has been informed by a German doctor, who was attached to the Viceroy of Egypt, and was for a considerable time head of the Cairo hospital, that the power of healing among the Arabs, for example, is extraordinary. One day a fairly old man fell from a roof of a somewhat low house upon a stockade, in such a way that he was transfixed on three bars which entered the upper part of the thigh and passed out again for about a hand's breadth. And that was not enough, for the unfortunate man had been removed from his position so unskillfully and with so few precautions that the bars considerably enlarged the wounds, and yet the three wounds healed without suppuration or fever. No doubt the climate there was not without its influence, but all the same, the wounds of gypsies, both in Europe and in other parts of the world, cure with astonishing rapidity. The gypsy is very sensible to bodily pain, and yet he is able to continue his wanderings with severe wounds, and, above all, it is wonderful what he can support when he is in flight. A gypsy had been run down at a horse-mart by a carriage, and had been so badly hurt that the doctors of the hospital to which he was carried, in an unconscious condition, considered that it would be several weeks before he would be well. Probably the conscience of the patient was somewhat troubled, for the third night after the accident he escaped by the window and disappeared not forgetting to carry off with him his bedclothes. If, then, the question is whether or not a gypsy, wounded at such and such a moment, has been able, in spite of his wounds, to do such and such a thing, care must be taken to view the matter in a different manner to that in which it would be viewed if he were not a gypsy. In the same way, if the question is, at what time a wound already cicatrized has been received, in the case of a gypsy, the time must be considerably diminished, for as an experienced surgeon once told the author, one sees the wounds of gypsies closing before one's eyes. The gypsies and their partisans attribute the promptness of these cures not to bodily constitution but to the medicines they are supposed to employ. Recently a constable wished to arrest an extremely dangerous thief who had lived for a long time among the gypsies. The thief engaged, in an inn, in a fight with firearms with the constable. The constable fell. As to the thief, his lower arm was completely shattered by a bullet of the constable, but he was able to take flight, and meeting a lad who had often given him shelter, he said to him, "'If I can only get to my people, the gypsies, they will soon cure my arm, otherwise I am lost.' These words prove the confidence which this man had in the art of healing as practiced by the gypsies. The same may be said of the illnesses to which the gypsy, like other men, is subject, but with this difference that the former remains in the open air without shelter and is sometimes even obliged to continue his march there are many gaps in the statistics regarding gipsies but all the same it may be supposed that mortality is no greater among them than among others we meet among them a surprising number of old men of astonishing freshness and vigor in the small number of cases in which the gypsies have illnesses, it would be false to conclude that the theft could not have been committed by a band of gypsies simply because, for example, their children were stricken with the smallpox. Such a circumstance would in no way deter them, a fact which also explains the sudden appearance of contagious illnesses which have been communicated by gypsy beggars and thieves. Section 8. Gypsy Proverbs we shall end this chapter with a few specimens of proverbs of and concerning gypsies, for as we have already said, no better aid to knowing a people exists than the proverbs of which it is the author, or those which others have applied to it. Above all, the investigating officer ought to know the people with whom he has to deal. The following proverbs have been selected from various sources. Better a donkey to carry you than a horse to throw you. If you keep a secret in your heart, no one will ever know it. Choose neither a wife nor a cloth by the light of the moon. Do not seek for what you cannot get. It is not thieving that is shameful, but the being caught. It is easier to steal than to work. He who holds the ladder is as bad as the thief. He who loads you with flattery has deceived or wishes to deceive you. TO WAIT TO BE ASKED TO EAT IS TO RISK BEING OFTEN HUNGRY. A HAPPY LIFE MAKES GOOD FRIENDS CHILDREN TELL WHAT THEY DO, MEN WHAT THEY THINK, OLD MEN WHAT THEY HAVE SEEN. THE FOOL HAS HIS HEART ON HIS LIPS, THE WISE MAN HAS HIS LIPS IN HIS HEART. THE FOREGOING ARE SPECIMENS OF PROVERBS OF THE gipsy's OWN MAKING. THE FOLLOWING ARE ABOUT THE GYPSY. THEY LIVE LIKE GYPSIES. WHEN HUSBAND AND WIFE COME TO BLOWS, TO BE A GYPSY, YOU HOWL LIKE A GYPSY, THE GYPSY DOES NOT KNOW HOW TO HOLD THE PLOW, DOESN'T WORK, HE RIDES A GYPSY HORSE, HE LIES, GYPSY TRADE, i.e. THEFT, ALL THAT IS BAD, VALUELESS, OR DECEITFUL HAS THE EPITHET GYPSY, e.g. BRASS equals GYPSY GOLD, FISH FULL OF BONES equals GYPSY CARP, WILD GRAPES WHICH NO ONE CAN EAT equals GYPSY GRAPES bad wine equals gypsy wine, etc. All this shows how the gypsy imposes upon the countryside, and is hated for it, detested and harried by every one. It is by injuring and destroying that he lives out his wretched life. For Gypsy Signs see Chapter 7, Section 4, Gypsy Magic and Superstition, Chapter 10. See also Chapter 17, Section 6, A, and E. End of Section 10